0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places where no one else does. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you, and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. Today, we're going to take you back to one of our favorite cities, New Orleans, so let the good times roll.
0: Today's World Footprints takes you beyond the French Quarter as we introduce you to some of the people and places that make New Orleans so special. First, living legend Leah Chase, the inspiration for the Disney film The Princess and the Frog, joins us from her family's restaurant, Dookie Chase, to share some stories from her remarkable life. Then we'll explore the history of New Orleans' free people of color as Beverly McKenna of Le Musée de FPC takes us on a tour of the museum that she and her husband have created to tell the story of this vibrant yet sometimes forgotten community and John Hankins of the New Orleans African American Museum of Art, Culture, and History joins us again to talk about the contributions of the African American community in building New Orleans. Finally, Tanya sits down for a chat at the world-famous Carousel Bar at the Hotel Montleon as we learn about the historic hotel's literary guest and friendly ghost who make this place a popular stop in the French Quarter from the hotels Emily Schmidt and Carrie Plotkin. And throughout today's show, we'll share some history about the people and places that shaped Treme, the oldest African-American community in the United States. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com.
1: And you can also comment to us and contact us from our contact page on our website, worldfootprints.com. And there you can also connect with us. And follow us on our social networks Twitter, Facebook, and others. It's a growing list. So sit back now and relax and enjoy New Orleans beyond the French Quarter. There are many iconic things in in New Orleans, but I I am sitting in the most iconic restaurant in the whole city, world-renowned Duke Chase, and I'm so honored to be with its owner, Leah Chase. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and I'm happy
2: that you're here. You know, we depend on our visitors and we really like when they come cuz they kind of pick us up and give us a little push. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it didn't take much influencing it to, for us to come here today. Thank you. Miss Chase now, you know, this th- your restaurant has been established since 1941. It's a family restaurant. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the family history.
2: Well, it's been here in and it's still in the family and um maybe that's why I think we're moving slow because the family's getting old
3: <laughs> no
2: my husband and I are the ones at the top and you know sometimes you can't get people this age to move fast enough for me I'm not moving fast enough because he moves very slow and I can't deal with that but anyway it's coming though it, It's it was just a hard thing you know we were going good before the storm and Here comes Katrina and knocks us out completely. We lost everything. This room and the chairs in this room are the only things I saved in this restaurant. The rest was all watered out. Here we had about, in this room, we had about a foot and a half of water. But downstairs we have five feet. In this dining room we had two and a half feet. And the water stayed so long in the city, you know. It kept coming and usually we have a little high water but it'll go away, but it was a mess. So we had to gut this whole place out. <laughs> we had to, I was lucky because my grandson was a fireman at that time. No, uh-uh, Mm-mm, David. And David said, Grandmother, he used to come in every day, and I couldn't believe because we had never had water before. I said, David, don't tell me. I I never had water. He said, but you have it now. So he said, but if you don't move this art off, The water hasn't reached the art yet, but the mold will get it. So he and the New York Fire Department, when the New York Fire Department came, that was a savior for us. Our people were bummed out. They just were tired out, and they couldn't think. So they helped him move all this, and they moved it to Baton Rouge. So I was able to save this art, and I'm grateful for that.
1: Well, you know, in, in that that raises another question. You know, when we were standing outside, you know, the building is huge. First of all, it's much larger in here than than it, it meets outside. the eye.
2: But there's a lot of work to be done outside, and that's what I'm trying to I couldn't get it done right because they were working on the streets, and that took forever. They dug up all the streets out there, put down new pipes and new everything. So they just finished that about a week ago. So now I have to start fixing up outside, but I still don't have any street lights. So, you know, so much of the city, the lights just went. So the mayor's really trying, but he's got so much on his plate. You know, he's trying to get it one section at a time to give us our street lights back. So we can open at night, I got to get open at night.
1: Oh, uh, so that okay, I now I understand the, the daytime hours, but I tell you, you know, we were one of the first guests here at eleven o'clock. By eleven forty the main dining room was
2: packed. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they come a lot. And uh, but I I I like that they come for lunch, but you know lunch people don't have a whole lot of time. They have to eat and run and all that kind of thing. I like people to sit down and have time. If I open for dinner, you can come get a sandwich and sit down and just enjoy it, you know. So it's going to work out for me. I'm going to get it done.
1: Yeah, and you know, you're talking about Katrina, and I know know that the the restaurant was closed down for a while, but this restaurant has so, it's fostered so much loyalty. I know the community came together to help you rebuild.
2: And I'm I'm forever grateful. That's why it bugs me when I can't move faster than I'm moving. Because so many people helped me, you know, and when people help you, you got to move and show them you appreciate the help. The only chairs I saved were these in this room here, that's the only chairs, the rest went and, well, my friends in Fort Wayne raised money to buy all those chairs, those red and gold chairs and this, and so the little uptown ladies came, put on their gloves and scrubbed all these and painted them all up again, so we were able to save this. So. Yes it's done so a lot of people helped me and when people help you I believe you got to really work hard so they don't think well I wasted my time you know helping and I'm grateful that they thought enough of me that they thought enough of this business to know that it had to continue and I'm grateful for that
1: well, you know, you're a legend. We were in the uh, Southern Food
2: and Beverage Museum. You have your own gallery. Gallery there. That is a fun thing, and I like that. A museum is so good for the city. People like to go there, and it's fun to go there. So I was pleased to be a part of that. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Now, you were also on the Disney film last year You uh, that came out last year, Princess and a Frog. You were a consultant on that film. How authentic was the New Orleans characteristics or characters in the film to you? Uh,
2: when they came to me for that, um, it was really based on my life. And, you know, I was a waitress, always wanted a restaurant, and Tiana was a waitress, always wanted a restaurant. Finally, she got it, all that kind of thing. <laughs> So that was pretty interesting what they did there because we talked about three or four times over dinner. Everything we do in New Orleans, we do over dinner or something. So all the directors and the people came by and we talked and then they came out with this little movie and that was really interesting. It was so interesting. It's a great little movie. And I, I really thought it was time that we had a black, princess we had snow white we had cinderella we had bell we had all the others and i think it was time for disney to do that and they did a nice job it's a fun little movie it's so fun and they just talked to me about my entire life and i just talked to them i even told them about mr obama mr obama came in here and one <laughs> day and I gave him gumbo. I said, eat your gumbo while you're waiting for your chicken. He's always on a run. So he had to run. I said, your chicken, you can take it with you, but eat your gumbo. The first thing he did was cut stuff in my gumbo. <laughs> I said, Mr. You just don't put hot stuff in my gumbo, you know. You got to taste the thing first. So that to me was a negative. But if you look at this Little Princess of the Fog movie, they made it a positive because they had Mama Yody put hot stuff in that big pot of gumbo. <laughs> so it was really fun. It was a fun little movie. and It, it did a lot for our city because we had a big exhibition at the museum, the Disney exhibition. And so that went well for the city. And I'm glad for that.
1: Well, you know, you I know over the years you've had a lot of wonderful, uh, uh, very famous people. You, you know, our president, current President Obama, you just mentioned. But who else are some of the notable figures who have dined in Dookie e.
2: Chase? A lot of them. Well, pre- President Bush came twice. I had him for dinner, and then he invited me. He was kind to me. He was extremely kind to me every time he came to this city. He saw that I was wherever he was, it was George W., W. W. nicest man, really a kind person, you know. I don't think he had such a successful term as president, but maybe his advisors, you know, you have to work with advisors and they advise you one way and you should go another way, whatever, whatever, but he was really kind. And he came to this city about three times or four times. So he he came and I had break he had breakfast here and dinner here. So he was kind to me. He was really and through the years you have to feed everybody. You know, all the years ago there was no place for African Americans to eat. So I fed the Jackson Five. I fed them till they got to be about fourteen, fifteen years old. Then I would see I would see uh, Tito and Germaine Sometimes they come through here, but i didn't ever see jack uh, michael after he reached that age you know and i'm sorry about that i used to send him the sweet potato pies from time to time because he loved sweet potato pies he loved sweet potato pies so there was a man here who was a bodyguard for them and they would go he would take them from time to time so i fed everybody duke ellington king cole the ceremony everybody you know, so that was fun doing that.
3: Well,
1: I, I know, you know, you mentioned you and your husband. You know, you, you're, you're still involved, but you have um, grandchildren and and, and and, children who are involved.
2: My daughter is on the floor. That lady working the floor is my daughter. Okay. Mm-hmm. your grandson? He's my grandson. Mm-hmm. Now, out of my 16 grandchildren, you know, you educate your children and your grandchildren, and you educate them right out of your business. You can't afford them to you give them all the degrees, like my son has four or five degrees, I can't afford him. So he goes, you want your children to move on. You never think. But Duke, what we call him, Ducky Four, he's the only one that showed interest. So after he got his MBA, he said, I'm going to culinary school. So he went to the Cardinal Blue in Paris. So, and so now I have to get this dinner going so he really can move up, move up and move up. And continue the thing on, you know, because we don't have enough African-American entrepreneurs. Nowhere in this country. We just don't have enough of them. You know, we put them in office, but it's the business people who run the show. So we need more African-Americans in business. We need that. So some of my grandkids are in business. The ones in Atlanta, one has two of them running about 12 Burger Kings and then... One has about 50% of the Popeye's franchises out there. So they're doing good. Uh-huh. They're doing good. he, well, they had help. And I always say, if somebody give you a help, you just move it on over. So Mr. Aaron, who is my grandson's father-in-law, helped him a whole lot, getting things going and moving things in Atlanta. So it's good.
1: Well, Ms. Chase, it's been an honor for me. Uh, you're a living legend, and I feel like I'm living history today, and I, I just thank well, you so much. I'm a
2: legend, all right. I'm old enough. You know, <laughs> Rip Van Winkle was a legend, so I am one, too. But,
1: you know, as, as slow as you think your legs move, your heart you sore. When?
2: Well, when are you going to retire? You're 88 years old. You ought to be out of there. But, I, I'm, you know, I can't leave anybody a mess. So when I straighten out this mess and get it all smooth, then I'm out of here. Oh, bless.
3: Thank
1: yes. you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was an incredible honor to sit down and chat with Miss Chase, also known as Chef Leah. On our tour of Treme with our guide, Milton, we learned a bit more about the Chase family.
4: Well, of course, y'all have been the uh, uh, Miss Miss Leah Chase and Dookies have a establishment that's that been here for quite a long time. Uh, they have... Um, it's very unique in New Orleans how we do. We name our kids after ourselves, the women and the men, so that in the case of Miss Leah, her daughter, who I went to school with, Leah Chase, is a singer. She's a jazz singer. She have a son named Lil Dookie, who is actually Edgar Chase the third. He is a politician. So they have the both of the mixes in the in the Chase family that uh, takes care of the political end and also the party end with the with the music. Well, also, we also have another famous restaurant right around the corner. Right down here, you look at the restaurant on the left that is called Willie Mae's Scotch House. Willie Willie Mae's Scotch House is famous, and it became really famous after the storm. It was more of a neighborhood-type place that just the kind of people that kind of knew about New Orleans would come to Willie Mae's. She had some excellent fried chicken like uh, Doogie Chases, but she had some good beans and, and other New Orleans staples. But uh, as we look over here, we've seen the new New Orleans. This is the site of the Old Lafitte housing project.
0: When we return, it's off to La Musee de FPC in Upper Treme to learn about a forgotten history.
5: Going back to the Spanish colonial days, it is said recorded that people of color owned 80% of the property. In this um, area through land, lots, the houses, and so forth.
0: As World Footprints Radio continues.
5: Hi, this is Chantal from New Orleans. I love worldfootprintsradio.com. You guys rock.
0: Want to take control over your money and your own investments? Forget the stock market. Look no further. Go to www.onlineforex.net.
3: Onlineforex.net. Onlineforex.
0: Visit www.onlineforex.net today and take part in their special promotion and get the best sign-up offers available. Onlineforex.net, the online forex website for you.
4: Hi, this is Keenan Joyner. Welcome to New Orleans. We're here with the World Footprints people, and they are the best people in the world. You guys, have a good day. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. This area of town we call the Six Ward. I was raised up with uh, the, in the Six Ward. Uh, we always refer this as the Six Ward, and we refer ber- further back around Claiborne as the Treme area. But this is all actually Treme. Uh, the big issue about uh, New Orleans is that, you know, we cannot use directional north, south, east, and west. We can only use upriver, which is uptown, downriver, which is downtown, out front of town, which is out by the riverfront, and back of town, which we call this area that's going toward the lake. So when we talk about uptown, and as I'm referring to things in the city, I will be referencing with our vernacular, uptown, downtown, back of town, out front of town. And if you get confused, I'll direct you guys again.
0: Thanks, Milton, for help with the directions in New Orleans. Welcome back to World Footprints, I'm Ian Fitzpatrick and with Milton's help we're headed to Upper Treme to meet Beverly McKenna of Les Musée de FPC or FPC en Francais, which stands for Free People of Color. Let's learn about this somewhat forgotten part of New Orleans history.
5: This is let me say, de FPC it's a house museum dedicated to the story and legacy of free people of color. Um, it's a result of A collection, our collection, which goes back over 30 years of documents, um, artifacts, furnishings, paintings, um, as they relate to this particular group of people. As you all know, there's nothing peculiar about or special about this group of people being only here. There were free people of color all over the United States, 250,000 of them prior to the Civil War, but there was a larger group of them here. Right. Um, records of people of color, these free people of color going back to 1722, um, when they first appeared here and first show up on the, the records. We begin our story here, um, of course, Recognizing the connection to Africa, uh, the African retentions which mark this area, and which many people still come to visit and to appreciate and to enjoy today are those um, the food, the cooking, all the things that people, the music, the jazz, they all can be traced to Senegal and most of the people. Africans who came or the slaves who came here the enslaved had their roots in Senegal um there's no record of people of color ever having owned this house
3: mm-hmm.
5: however this area is called upper Treme you just left Treme which mm-hmm. they told you was one of the oldest neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh housing developments in the country built and developed by people of color so this is just an extension of that area uh, Wherein, going back to the Spanish colonial days, it is said and recorded that people of color owned 80% of the property in this um, area due the land, lots, the houses, and so forth. And that's what I'm saying. Although there's no record of people of color ever owning this prior to us, um, we know just because we were dominant in the trades, plastering, ironwork, Carpentry, a very sophisticated level of craftsmanship that we built it. So that's our connection, and um, why we choose, we, you know, to showcase this. But because there's no record of ownership, we have built the story of the house that we are, that we tell. And I won't take you through the whole thing because I know you all are tired. But this around the doctor Louis Charles Rudinez, who was a Man of color um mother was from Haiti. He was a physician, got his medical degree in Paris in eighteen fifty three these are the kinds of stories that we that we don't know, and this this is another reason we we pulled out our things that we had collected, but it's a story that we think should be told. Mm-hmm. You know the story is skewed always you know, my favorite is until the lion tells his own story. The tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. <laughs> so, um, but at any rate, he came back and then he got another medical degree from Dartmouth. This is in the 1800s, mid 1800s. Came back home, had a thriving medical practice, where he treated the poor and rich alike. A lot of the noted people were his in the community, were his for his patients. But in addition to that, Dr. Ruth is was very much an activist. And he established one of the first papers dedicated or directed to people of color, and um, again, he spoke out, he was an advocate for the enslaved as well as the free people. And then he started, that paper folded and he started the New Orleans Tribune. We publish a newspaper that we started in 1985, my husband and I. And because we were such admirers of Dr. Rudin as his spirit, his voice, his advocacy for the downtrodden, really, that we.
0: Uh, named our paper, Some of the people of color came to New Orleans as free people, and some had to buy their way to freedom, as Beverly explains.
5: A lot of them, some of them came here free through the Caribbean. They came up either as servants or whatever, but they came here already free. Some of them received manumission because of service or affection, hmm. close relationships with some of the people in the country, this is in, in the community. This is an actual manumission paper going back to 1761 mm. of a, a Francois Amadie. her are is still living here in New Orleans now uh, where she was granted her freedom because of her relationship, her faithful and loyal service. Mm. Um, but what amazes me and the one that I'm always in impressed with or I always stop and think about uh, because a lot of the people came here with these very you know they were skilled they were skilled laborers so they were very valuable and they as they went out or on their weekends off time off they were allowed to go out and work hire themselves out and then but they had to come back and split the money with their owner Um, In doing so, though, they saved their money, and then they were able to, many of them bought their own freedom or the freedom of loved ones. And I just always find that amazing. And that happened more uh, under the the Spanish rule. They were very much in favor of this. And this is a Mondot detainment where they, spell
0: this out. Afro-Creole women in New Orleans were forced to wear their hair differently under what was known as the Tignon Law, as a way to keep them oppressed and subservient. Even so, the Tignon women were able to express their individuality with the way they wore their hair, as Beverly explains.
5: Uh, The Tignon Law was one these people were very prideful, they had a lot of dignity uh, very confident and so the governor Governor Miro back in 1785 he thought these people were just a little bit too full of themselves. So he made the women, woman, and this, is, and this is true story and it's still amazing to me. They had to wrap their head in the manner and style of the servant class. So they couldn't go out with hats on or they couldn't go out with their hair fixed. They had to wrap their head. Well, you know, how ladies are so these people were very inventive and very mm-hmm. sassy so they learned how to decorate it put feathers put mm-hmm. jewels and so then uh they made it you know beautiful mm-hmm. so they um so then women all over the area started dressing their head but this was called the tignon law i just think We talk about the antebellum period here. Uh, And this was a period, this was after the Louisiana Purchase. Now, we talked about the people having a lot of freedoms under the French and the Spanish. You know, they had a laissez-faire attitude. Uh, People flourished, prospered, bought real estate. But with the coming of the Americans in 1803, they came with a lot more restrictions, a lot more oppressive rules. Uh, and regulations and so it was an unsettling time for these people. Uh here's a wall of PBS pinchback. Uh Henriette DeLille who was who is now up for canonization. She's up for sainthood. Tommy Lafon was a very uh wealthy real estate held a lot of real estate in the city. Edmund Dade, this gentleman over here was a famous from a very musical family. Rudolph de Dune, writer, of course, everybody knows Marie Laveau. Uh Oscar J. Dunn, who became the lieutenant lieutenant governor mm-hmm. in 1868. So these were people who were doing great things back then. Uh, they owned a lot of property. If you go in the French Quarter, I'm sure you'll be down there. Uh, you can go back in this period, black people owned over half of the real estate down
0: there the creoles and free people of color of new orleans were instrumental in building the city in fact they dominated the buildings trades and decorative arts Le Musée features some authentic pieces from many of the leading craftsmen of the day including a Haitian man named Dutreil Barjon, a master craftsman and cabinet maker Beverly tells us about. She believes his story can inspire New Orleans youth to think differently about what they can accomplish with their lives. This
5: armoire and the day bed were made by Barjon. He is a man of color from Haiti and... Was one of the master cabinet makers in the area. He had a shop at the 200 blocks of uh, Royal Street in the corner, which that's where they lived the people lived at that time. The Kenyon Master, Mm -hmm. and very, very few pieces of these furniture. This man's furniture, um, you know, is still in existence. But we think it's important that we have this, so if we could bring our kids and let them do, mm-hmm. you know, do research on Barjan, let them do research on the cabinet makers or mm-hmm. the people, all the arts and artisans and craftspeople. Mm-hmm.
0: As we leave Le Musée to FPC, Milton takes us deeper into the history of Treme as we learn about one of the historic cemeteries st louis number one
4: it is run by the archdiocese uh, of new orleans the catholics of new orleans the catholics were um the ones that built the cemeteries but the cemeteries because of the fact that we it was against the law to be anything else but catholic prior to the louisiana purchase the the cemeteries was segregated but it was not segregated in race After the Americans came after 1803, it was segregated in religion. How was it segregated in religion? Well, because when America came, it was freedom of religion. They could not not let Protestants in. And one of the first persons that they were let in was the wife of the first American governor, who was Governor Claiborne. His wife died, and she was a Protestant. So they erected a Protestant graveyard. So when you take a trip in a graveyard, you could look at the graves are all mixed with race but you go to the back of the graveyard and that's where you have the Protestant big graveyard and it is labeled Protestant graveyard. It is not as fabulous as the tombs in the Catholic graveyard even though we have black and white. A lot of society tombs we have in the graveyard because we had um, benevolent societies that basically uh, put together where you pay a few dollars a month and you were guaranteed to be uh, have a place for your burial. When you look at the graveyard, you will see this wall not this wall, but the next wall, when we pass over will show you, it is a wall vault. Uh, because of uh, of us having been below sea level, we cannot bury in the ground. We had to bury above the ground. So, burying above the ground, you had a year and a day before you could put a person in your grave. So, that say because of yellow fever and the other things that was killing people off fast, you had to be put in a wall vault. And uh, you would see the wall vaults right here, this big wall. You stop. and you see how that juts out and you see how these, the, the graves are right to it see how, the, see how the tomb is right to this wall this wall here juts out so that you can put a body in that wall and with the heat and with the lime that they use to close it up it helps deteriorate the body but after a year and a day they would transfer that body from that wall vault into a grave because after a year and a day you can bury it and how they do that they take out the, the old coffin, the pieces of coffin and take the remains of the person, put it in a bag and then they put that one in the grave and then they'll put the next person on top.
1: After the break, we pay a visit to the New Orleans African American Museum with John Hinkins. And
4: here we have a
6: manumission paper of a woman who did buy her free. for um, well, her. Her name was you should
1: come and take a look at this, son. Next on World Footprints Radio.
6: My name is Mo. I'm born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt, and I live in the audience for almost 17 years. And I, I like to hear World Footprints. Thank you.
1: National Breast Cancer Awareness Month educates women about the importance of early detection. More and more women are getting mammograms to detect breast cancer in its earliest stages. As a result, breast cancer deaths are on the decline. Encourage the women in your life to get mammograms on a regular basis. For more information, call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-4-CANCER. This message is brought to you by World Footprints Radio.
6: Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints and come visit us in New Orleans sometimes at French Quarter Festivals.
0: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists
4: Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Congo Clat, and when I give tours, I tell people, is the birthplace of not only jazz, but I think it was the birthplace of all American music because you have uh, a unique thing here. You have Africans being able to practice their religions, talk their languages, they played their instruments. The instruments that they recorded playing were string instruments that looked close to banjos and also drums. So from there you had the beginnings of the music of of the whole United States. And when you trace any of the music back, you're gonna always trace it back to the break of jazz and the blues that was started here in congo square
0: that was milton on the rich new orleans jazz history as we stopped at congo square in treme welcome back to world footprints i'm ian fitzpatrick and if you're a fan of the hbo series treme or if you've seen the pbs documentary Faubourg Treme, we are delighted to share another treasure from the historic Treme District, the New Orleans African American Museum of Art, Culture and History. The museum's executive director and chief historian John Hankins takes us on a tour of this Treme treasure. First, let's learn more about the contributions from the African American community and the building of New Orleans from John.
6: The first bricks uh, were fired up right here and so most of the early buildings uh, were built with bricks from here. And even now, uh, you'll see, even at older places like this, they'll put a few uh, lake bricks in there and turn them up so that people can see that you got some good bricks in your house. <laughs> this house uh, was erected in uh, 1828, 1829. Uh, and uh, it is what is called, uh, it's kind of a hybrid architecture. It's called uh, uh, a uh, a villa. Um, it's called a Creole Villa which is kind of a a hybrid of, a, um, of like a vernacular uh, type of a house, like a Creole villa, and uh, the grand, uh, I mean a Creole cottage and a grand villa. So you'll notice that this has all the trappings of a Creole villa, but when you walk inside, it has this great center hallway like you would find in American houses.
0: As we enter the Creole villa, a set of compelling artifacts awaits one inside the museum. John explains why Africans, Creoles, and people of color influenced architecture, building and the decorative arts in the city.
6: There are two things one uh the architecture here is uh is kind of a, a trans caribbean afro- caribbean style and it really was brought here from haiti uh for the most part Jamaican Cuba and so uh with the uh and which is the root two of the whole slave trade. New Orleans was peculiar in that during the Spanish colonial period and the French colonial period, you really had a tripartite uh, uh, social and political structure here. So you had very similar to apartheid in South Africa in the 20th century. You had a white class that were citizens, you had a black class that for the most part were slaves, then you had a middle part who were free people of color. Many of them were mixed race people, so you couldn't call them all colored because they were not all in Louisiana. You could purchase your freedom, and by statute, any uh, descendant, any child of a slave and a free person was free. Right. So you, for instance, this family here, the matriarch of this family was what's called a free negress. So she was a black woman because you know they had these very well delineated, you know, strata of people. You know, if you were a negress or a negro, you were black. If you were a mulatto, you were half black, half white. If one line of your family was black and the other three lines were white, you were a quadroon. If one line were black and seven, everybody else in your family, was white, you were a... Octoroon. Octoroon. Now, we're talking now about perhaps, what, three generations, 80, 90 years. That means no more black people have ever been in your family in 80 years. You are still an Octoroon. Uh, You were not white, even though by that time you were looking pretty white, right? Uh, And which caused them, and then, you know, Louisiana had this thing, which essentially was Kind of uh, had been, uh, you know, kind of pejoratively called a one drop rule, uh, which uh, they defined these things even like one sixteenth you were something, you know, one thirty second you were something. Actually, all the way up to 164, you know, it was like it would take you like a hundred and fifty years to bleach your family white in Louisiana. Seriously. And people tried to do that too. That they would not. But I'm talking about no other black people in your family line. For, you know, uh, and this is very common, for two generations, uh, you were a quadroon. That was kind of your entree into passing. So a lot of people kind of go to another place, get papers saying they were white, and they could pass. And even here, they could pass physically. Uh, Even in New Orleans, where you had a whole bunch of people like that, and got to the point uh, that they uh, issued a statute saying that, all Creole women, regardless of how you look, had to wear a tino and a head wrap so that you would not, uh, so that you couldn't pass, so you wouldn't be confused for a white woman. So you had this uh, tripartite side to here. Most of the uh, free people of color, uh, engaged, were uh, their, uh, you know, they were free, they had to make a living. So their skill sets were in the trades. They were in the crafts. Uh, so if you look at the uh, uh, apprenticeship records uh, here from the city, which uh, which is the good thing about Louisiana, they have we have records of the African population here dating all the way back to you know the first ship loads that came here, which is unusual. You know, in most places, uh, certainly in the original 13 colonies. You know, if you were trying to trace your ancestor, you might be able to get back to a plantation, and then if you could get to like 1870, you could follow people in a census or something like that. But before that, you might be able to get to a plantation where you might find a, uh, you know, a transaction, a sales record or something, but nothing about individual people. Here, everybody was mandated to be Catholic. Spanish times from the very first, you know, 1700s. So you had, to, even though you were a slave, you were Catholic, so you had to be baptized, had to have communion, had to have all this stuff. So uh, the Catholic Church uh, maintained these sacramental records. And so we're able to now, uh, you know, really have uh, very specific uh, information about the uh, African. Uh, African-American population in the state of Louisiana from its very beginning, 1719 on, which is not possible anywhere else.
0: One of the most intriguing exhibits at the museum deals with how slaves became free with the possession of manumission papers, as John
6: explains. And here we have a manumission paper of a woman who did buy her freedom. Oh, boy, Her name was... You should come and take a a look at this, Sonny. Read this. This is chilling. Read that aloud. Uh,
1: Louisa Conway, uh, being anxious to purchase herself, has the privilege to do so, provided she enjoys? Pays. Oh, pays me the sum of 450 within a year from this date. May 30th, 1844.
6: Put that in context. You see this is one of the uh, most expensive blocks in Tremaine. In 1843, the house on the corner there, a uh, lot with our building on it, sold for $400. So, I mean, it's like a crazy money, maybe 20 dollars $25,000. So, and then what does it say down here? Paid for Louisa $450, May 21st, 1845. She got that money with nine days left. How did she get that money? Yeah. Well, you asked how did people, uh, you know, make a living here? Well, uh, a lot of times, you know, even though it was illegal for people to marry interracially, this whole community was created out of... In a racial relation. And so, you know, you have situations where someone, uh, whether they be a free person of color or a free uh, white person, would uh, want to, uh, I can say, marry someone. They um, would have to negotiate with the owner. And what they did was they had to offer a fair market value, which they would make it real high, like that. So most people couldn't come up with that money. But if you know the person who wanted her, or if she had family members or something who may have been free, they could have all pulled the money together. Communities mm-hmm. would pull the money, mm-hmm. but mostly it was people who wanted to be married, and they would do it. One of the artifacts inside the museum is a traditional
0: Mardi Gras costume.
6: One of the uh, parading traditions innovated by New Orleans uh, African Americans is uh, to create these fantastic suits out of feathers and sequins and beads uh, each year at Mardi Gras time. And they make a new one every year. can't wear the same one uh, two years in a row. Uh, this is the very first suit ever made by... Uh, this man, Dow Michael Edwards. Uh, his first year suiting was uh, year before last. And uh, so uh, the Indians make these suits every year and they really only wear them about three times a year. Mardi Gras and at the uh, St. Joseph's Day and another day they call it Super Sunday. Uh, and uh, this tradition goes back to like the like 1880s or so and um, uh, they pay homage to Uh, The Native Americans who uh, were kind of befriended a lot of uh, the people of color here.
0: Although the museum has traditional galleries, it is a living history museum too, reflecting the architecture of the Treme neighborhood and the city at large.
6: On the campus, we have four types of architecture that really you'll find in Treme, which is the oldest African-American neighborhood in America. This is what's called a shotgun house or a shotgun double. And uh, I told you that was a Creole Cottage, but it's like a big Creole Cottage, Creole Villa. Uh, This is a shotgun house. Uh, They call them shotgun houses because there are no hallways in Louisiana houses. Remember I told you that's a hybrid because it has what? That center hallway in there. Well, and most of these houses you see here, the shotgun houses and so forth, you have to really like your family and your friends because you see them. <laughs> There's no way to uh, to block the way. You got to walk yeah. through a room to get to another room. Oh. <laughs> so they call them shotgun houses because all the doors and windows line up. And they say if you open all the doors, you can shoot a shotgun Do through that. it and it'll go right out the back without hitting a thing. Huh. This is a Creole cottage. Here's the oldest type of architecture here in the city. And. Um, uh... So this also is like a Afro Caribbean style of architecture. This is another one. These were built in the eighteen thirties, about ten years after, seven or eight years after that house. This is our big project. This is built, uh-huh, so two houses. Uh, it was built in eighteen forty three. It has fallen into disrepair, but we just got $3 million to restore this. So, so anyway, we're starting on this project right now. Very interesting house uh, because of its location. This is a very popular corner uh, here. The um, Where that school uh, playground is right there, that used to be the Economy Hall. That's one of the most famous dance halls in New Orleans, history. that's where all the big big acts would come right there and uh just talking to some of the local older people living here they say oh this the little old lady around the corner their name is Kaufman she was when I, I asked her I said Miss Kaufman you ever go to any place uh ever go to anything at the um Academy Hall and she just blushed and started giggling she was like well she was like when, when mom and daddy would think we were sleeping, we'd slip out. <laughs>
0: Come around in me hall. Thanks, John. So much of the history of Treme is part of the American experience, particularly the music. As we head to break, Milton tells us how some of the giants of American rock and roll and soul were aided by the New Orleans sound.
4: You see two plaques here. You have Cosmo Matassas, who was the musical engineer of... The era of rock and roll. <laughs> Some of your first rock and roll records came out of this place here upstairs. J and M uh, Records was part of his dad's. Uh, uh, he had a business that sold like jukebox or rented jukeboxes and pinball machines and things like that. Well, he started the studio upstairs. Fast Domino, Ray Charles, Lil Richard. Um, I mean. Jay, uh, uh, Mr. Bartholomew who played with Fast Domino, all of these guys recorded here. It was said that when uh, Lil' Richard came here, he came here with his band, but when he got here with his band and he heard the musicians here, he told his band, well look, y'all go home and I'll beat y'all back after we record. <laughs> so he recorded with uh, all of New Orleans musicians, Lil' Richard did. So wow. most of his records that you hear, Little uh, through and All Root and all that, was done with those here? New Orleans musicians. Was done here. Really? Yes. yeah. Oh. And so now we have the beginning of, of all American music, as I said, in Congo Square. And now here you have in the forties uh, some of the first rock and roll records to come out of New Orleans to come into the rest of the world. I mean, that's, that that was a big place. Now you got other places that also say they came out with rock and roll around the same time but they both can claim some of the first rock and roll records that came out of this studio.
1: Up next, the colorful literary history of the Hotel Monteleone, one of our favorites. William
7: Faulkner... Tennessee Williams, I mentioned Eudora Welty, um, Richard Ford, um, Truman Capote. What's funny about Truman Capote is that he actually jokes that he was born in the hotel, <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't, he really wasn't. But.
1: Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait
5: to see you in New Orleans very soon.
0: World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information, including special daily travel deals.
1: Hi, I'm Patricia Elsey
5: from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian. And they love all the cooking, and they really enjoying the food. And I love them, and I hope they come back. Again.
4: And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. The house was where the little people who owned the place, that's why they called it little people, they were all short, lived in this part of the house. Uh, I'm personal friends with them, and uh, the lady told me that her grandfather started a sweet shop type of building in the back where he sold, you know, candy, cake, uh frozen cups and something we sell here. We, we freeze a... a, a fruity type mix and sell them you know in my day we sold them for a dime and I think they sell them for a little more now the Dirty Dozen Brass band started and one of the first places they started playing was here at the at uh, Little People's Place one of its members is a, 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 a legacy of uh, Sashma Armstrong a trumpet player by the name of Kermit Ruffin
3: mm-hmm.
4: and y'all familiar with Kermit yep. okay Kermit Ruffin married a Little People his wife had two children who are little people. So the significance of this building is that jazz with the brass bands proliferated out of one of these buildings because they played brass band music all intramed. We're going to pass that a few others. But this one here is is something that a lot of tour guides cannot tell you about.
1: That was Milton on the history of the little people. What an interesting story that was. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. I'm sitting in the one of the most iconic uh, hotels in New Orleans, certainly one of my favorites, as everybody knows, the Hotel Monteleone, in the very historic uh, carousel bar with my friends emily schmidt and carly Plotkin. um emily the the hotel monteleon is celebrating its 125th year of existence which i find amazing Tell, tell us about some of the events that you have planned this year to commemorate this milestone
7: Absolutely. Well, this is a very exciting year for the hotel, and when you reach such an important milestone, you can't capture it in one day. We have to spread it all year long. So what we've really tried to do this year in planning the 125th anniversary is really highlight the different cultural aspects that make up the personality of the hotel. So it's the literary history, the musical history, the culinary and cocktail entertainment history, the um, the haunted history, the political history. So you'll find all of the events that we have scheduled this year really highlight these different aspects that that just make up the whole culture of the hotel and make it so special and the, you know, the heart of the Fringe Quarter. No
1: discussion about the Hotel Monteleone is complete without a discussion about the Carousel Bar. How will the Carousel Bar play into some of the activities you have planned this year? And and can you give us a little bit of a history of the Carousel Bar?
7: Absolutely. Well, um, as a matter of fact, just yesterday we had... Um, a very significant event at the hotel. We dedicated the booth from the Carousel Bar to several musical legends who have impacted the history of the bar and the hotel. Um, we dedicated the booth to Dr. John and Alan Toussaint, um, Eddie James, Louis Prima, um, Pete Fountain, and then we dedicated the piano to Liberace as he was the first person to ever play on the piano, which is something that a lot of people may not have known. And, you know, all of these musicians, they've had such a great impact on our lives, but what we don't realize is, you know, these venues have such a great impact on their lives. And just hearing them talk about the Hotel Monteleon and what it meant to them yesterday was so special. And having them all here together was such a rare occasion. And, you know, uh, uh, Dr. John and Alan Toussaint performed a spontaneous concert, and Lena Frema sung a song... You know that was written by her father, and it was just—it was so special to have something like this. So, the carousel bar is such a mecca of entertainment, and so much goes on here. But you'll be sitting at the bar, and you'll strike up a conversation with a stranger that you didn't know before, and they'll tell you the most heartwarming story, right? You know, (laughs) about how, how this hotel has impacted their lives. You know, and so it's. It's one of the most famous bars in New Orleans. It's one of the most popular bars in New Orleans, and not just for tourists but for locals. You know, it's always a party in here, and it's you will you never know who you're going to meet. Do you
3: have anything?
8: Well, the Carousel Bar was originally opened in 1949. So in 2009, we celebrated the grand 60th anniversary of this historic you know, Mecca inside the Hotel Mont Leon And as Emily's touched on, just countless numbers of historic figures have come in and out of these walls, I mean, in and out of these doors and sat in these very booths that we sit in now. And it was just one small step that we could do to pay homage to them yesterday by dedicating just some of the booths in the bar to just a few of the musicians who have touched the bar and all the patrons in here. You know, it been a special moment in their lives. So we really, I mean, it's it's a whole other world in here. You step inside the carousel bar, and it just takes another life. You've got sparkling lights. You have this grand piano. You got a revolving bar. You have to be 21 to ride in on. And really, some of the locals like to say it's one drink per rotation, or what some you know. It's, it's actually 15 minutes to go one full rotation around. But um, it really is just a special, special thing that the hotel has. It, it,
7: not only that, um, you know, one of the most famous drinks that's named after the French Quarter, the Vu cocktail, was created by a hotel, a Montelian bartender in the carousel bar. Oh, I
3: didn't know you
7: know, that. and so you have influences not just from the musical aspect, but, you know, the, the cocktail aspect. Um, the bartenders go all around the world, you know creating these drinks and have influences from other cultures and they bring them back here mm-hmm. and I mean the bartenders have been there forever and you know you could probably be at a bar in, in New York City or LA and chances are you'll probably talk to somebody who's heard of the bar or who knows one of the bartenders here you know I mean they call them by name and, and it's the literati too who have come here and used the carousel bar as a place to write stories mm-hmm. you know you, Dora Welty wrote The Purple Hat, one of her short stories, right here in the carousel bar. And, you know, next next week, April 13th, we're having a luncheon, the Purple Hat luncheon, to celebrate her 102nd birthday. Again, we're going to have a Purple Hat fashion show and cupcakes and, you know, the the... Literati that have influenced and immortalized the carousel bar and, and the hotel and their works. It just shows the widespread impact that the hotel has had on on everyone.
1: Speaking of which, I know you have a collection of uh, books from well-known authors from Tennessee Williams to Faulkner and, and others who have frequented uh, this place, and hopefully maybe our book will be up there one day. <laughs> um, but, but talk about some of the other famous, uh, more... Most notable or memorable guests that uh, the Monteleone has hosted in past.
7: Some of the famous literati that has stayed here or written about it: William Faulkner. Tennessee Williams, I mentioned Eudora Welty, um, Richard Ford, um, Truman Capote. What's funny about Truman Capote is that he actually joked that he was born in the hotel, <laughs> which wasn't, he really wasn't, but but his, his mother was pregnant whenever she was, they were staying at the hotel for an extended period of time, and oh. she went to labor, you know, and, and, and actually gave birth at one of the hospitals but he
8: always joked that he was well, born was at the hotel <laughs> I know he I know years, and then she was going into labor and obviously they rushed her to, to a nearby hospital but when he became famous and was on the Johnny Carson show and he asked where he was born he dubbed the leone his, as his place of birth <laughs> to really kind of pay us homage and, and pay us tribute so in return even though we have several literary suites named after the authors who have included us in, in their works We've dumped a suite after Truman Capote, mostly because of his recognition to us as his home.
1: Oh, bless! So. Well, you know, certainly for me, no trip is complete to New Orleans, another place that both my husband and I call home, without stopping in here and just peeking in, really, to the Carousel Bar to see who's here. So I thank you guys both for um, inviting me in today and having having this chat.
3: Looking forward to uh, it. <laughs> We
1: hope you enjoyed our New Orleans show, and we look forward to sharing our travels with you and to connecting with you through Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms from our website, worldfootprints.com. So when you visit there, also make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive the breaking news about our breaking news. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
2: Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park. Natural beauty, the only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World
0: Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.